always on the prowl, looking for something or somebody to kill. Quench the killer's thirst. A young family, a husband, a wife, and two young boys stopped for gas while on vacation in a small rural town in Nevada. The two boys wander off. Unknown to them, a very large monster, who was once a Russian scientist, but now is a beast due to an atomic blast, inhabits the area. He's already killed at least two people, maybe more. The concerned father heads out to find the two lost boys, but he gets mistaken for the killer. A man in a small private plane flies overhead attempting to shoot the fleeing innocent man with a rifle. Will the family survive? The Beast of Yucca Flats? They're under the goddamn ground. Tell them about the Twinkie. What about the Twinkie? They have 500 years of democracy and peace. And what did that produce? The cuckoo clock. Two dollars multipass. You're stupid minds. Stupid. Stupid. I don't know whether I even want to go out with Jeff again. The High Court may well sentence you to torture. Can you play the piano? I can. And sing at the same time. Well, hello there. Welcome to the 41st episode of Celluloid Days, a podcast of film and film history. My name is Jeff Kelly, and here on this show, we go beyond just movie reviews. Or that's the idea. Today, we have a film I've seen many times before, both with the MST3K treatment and without. And believe me, Watching this film without the humorous commentary by Mike and the Bots, well, it isn't easy. So today, with the help of some friends, we look at The Beast of Yucca Flats. This film, in fact, all three Coleman Francis films, were totally forgotten about until appearing on Mystery Science Theater 3000. These works, well, I had a problem understanding, because they go beyond the usual films of questionable quality on Mystery Science Theater. I mean, Ed Wood. There's a man who had a burning desire to create stories on film, but just lacked the talent to do so. And then there was Harold P. Warren, an insurance and fertilizer salesman from El Paso, Texas, who was a community theater actor that took on the challenge, without any previous experience, to write and direct a horror film for very little money. Those are understandable, but what about the man who created Yucca Flats, The Skydivers, and Red Zone Cuba? Three films that have all the joy of disgruntled convicts having a picnic on a cold, overcast, windy day with occasional showers. Yeah, it's still a picnic, but not a pleasant one. Upon watching these, one might conclude that the creator had no clue of the art of filmmaking and that he had no experience or understanding of the craft. But that doesn't seem to be the case. I asked, who is Francis Coleman? Well, Coleman was the eighth child of Cynthia and William and grew up in the small town of Magnum, Oklahoma. In an article in the Green County News, they wrote... His interest in theater began in City View High School, where he amused classmates by imitating teachers and his own associates. By the time he graduated, everybody assumed Coleman would be an actor. He was very involved in school plays, and after high school, he left the small town to make it as an actor. Coleman didn't waste any time to pursue his acting dream. 
In an article in the Magnum Star in 1949, they wrote, And so in the spring of 1937, found him signing with the Monroe Hopkins Stock Company in Dallas, Texas. It was a strenuous life with the company, hauling its properties and ancient motor trucks for a series of one-night stands over the cherry phosphate belt. We ate hamburgers and it was a great life, Coleman recalled. We knew we had to learn our parts or we didn't eat. After three years, he joined the Pasadena Playhouse to study acting. But any chance of making it as an actor was put on hold in 1941 when Coleman was drafted into the Army to help fight in the Second World War. As a private, he served 32 months. In an article in the Magnum Star in 1949, after he returned home, they mentioned his job was to administer first aid to the wounded with the shells screaming overhead. More than anything else, I learned compassion, said Coleman Francis of his war experiences. The quality is useful to an actor. Written in the Magnum Star on April 25, 1949, after four years in the medical corps in the Pacific War Theater, he went to Hollywood and became associated with the Ben Bard Players, who at the time claimed Alan Ladd and Jack Carson. Francis met a New York actress named Barbara Frieda Schwartz, and the two were married in Los Angeles, California, on October 14, 1946. The couple would end up having two children, both boys. But the marriage was troubled right from the start due to Coleman's heavy drinking. In Barbara Francis's autobiography, she doesn't paint a pleasant picture of their life together. But as far as Coleman Francis the actor, he began appearing on the stage. He also appeared in both film and television, usually small parts, like in This Island Earth in 1955, in which he plays the delivery man. Morning. Morning. Sign here. He even had a speaking part in Glenn Ford's 1960 film Cimarron. Is there anything special you'd like to do or see here in Washington, Mr. Cravat? I'd be more than happy to have my office take care of the whole thing. And every now and again, he got a major role in a low-budget film, like The T-Bird Gang in 1959, where he plays a detective. All I have to do is let this report go through, and I can fix it so that lawyer can't get you out. His work on TV includes shows like Dragnet, Highway Patrol, Tombstone Territory, and The Tales of Wells Fargo. The movie columnist Luella Parsons took notice of Coleman. In her October 4, 1952 column, she wrote... Former delivery boy succeeds in movies. Although my street address is no secret to most of Hollywood, more to the sightseers who pass by, map in hand, one young newcomer to pictures has a unique reason for knowing it. He's Coleman Francis, who won the John Golden Award in New York a few years ago and now is starting his movie career. He knows my house because he used to be a delivery boy for I. Magnins and remembers delivering some dresses in a hurry to my door. His success is just wonderful. Besides his film and TV work, he also was a stage actor and sometimes director. He even directed John Carradine in the stage version of Tobacco Road, and he played a major part in a production of Inherit the Wind in 1959, two great reviews. So, what's my point? Well, my point is, you would have thought that Francis would have learned something about how to construct a film with all his work in movies and television, or learned a bit about character development from all his years on the stage. 
how does a man with 11 years acting, a man who has 30 IMDb credits during that period, make a film like Yucca Flats? The legend goes that the 40-year-old actor was watching television one evening. He was looking for an idea for an independent film that he could write and direct. On the tube, they were showing a film of an atomic test in Nevada. He gazed at the mushroom cloud rising up over the Nevada desert and suddenly yelled, That's it! The Beast of Yucca Flats! At least that's the story that Dale Steele in Modern Monster magazine told in the October-November 1966 issue. Coleman's original title for the film was to be The Violent Sun. Producing the film was Anthony Tony Cardoza. Cardoza had been a producer on Ed Wood's Night of the Ghouls. Basically, he gave Ed all his money and never got a cent back. Coleman called Cardoza because he was trying to get in touch with Tor Johnson, who had been in Night of the Ghouls. Lee Strasnider, a cameraman on the film, said of Cardoza, He sort of stayed in the background and somehow made things happen so Coleman had what he needed. He got people there and made the arrangements, things like that. If you needed anything, you talked to Tony because he was the one who could do it. The film was shot off the Sahara Highway in Asagas, Santa Clarita, California. According to Tony, the hardest part was carrying the heavy Mitchell camera up the mountains. It took four people to carry it. And there was the problem of getting a tour up the mountain. We had to push him up the hill, Tony said. Literally had to push him up the hill. We also put ropes around him and had some guys pulling him up. There were four of us, two up above pulling and two down below pushing. They only had tour for a couple of days. The poor guy looks like he's ready to collapse in some shots. He plays a monster who walks with a walking stick. I have to assume that was Tor's idea. I don't know. The first shot of the film shows Tor as Dr. Joseph Jaworski arriving in a small plane. Tor had the problem of fitting in the craft, so the filmmakers had to cheat the shot to get him out of the plane. It was shot mostly on the weekends and took almost a year in 1959. The camera was about the only equipment they had. No reflectors, lights, or sound equipment. The lack of sound let Francis free to direct while the camera was rolling. The lack of lights and reflectors is very apparent. It gives the film a wonderful dull gray look. Coleman himself plays two parts in the film. The mother of the two boys was played by his now ex-wife Barbara, and the two kids were his real sons. Mom, we saw some real pigs. Yeah, and a coyote. Coyote? Yeah. Don't you be playing with coyotes. Now, come on. We're leaving. Come on. Oh, we never get to have any fun. Cardoza also plays a few parts. The plot is simple. A Russian scientist, played by Tor, is defecting to the USA. Secret data. Never before outside the Kremlin. Man's first rocket to the moon. During a shootout with the Russian agents, he wanders into an atomic bomb testing area and gets blown up. That turns him into the beast, a mad killer. Now the film is narrated, and I've heard two versions of who is doing the narration. A lot of sources say it's Coleman himself, but others say he hired a local TV announcer to do the narration. A man runs, somebody shoots at him. 
Listening to it, it almost sounds like Coleman to me, which would make more sense because Welly had so little money to spend. Boys from the city, not yet caught in the whirlwind of progress, feed soda pop to the thirsty pigs. The most wonderfully bizarre part of the film is how, since they were shooting silent with the idea of adding the dialogue in post, Coleman made the decision to avoid showing the faces of the actors who were talking, therefore avoiding any sync problems. Sometimes their heads are cut off, sometimes they're showing the reaction of the other actor, sometimes they're showing the outside of a house, whatever. As long as you don't see the lips moving with the dialogue. But you know, now I've talked way too much and we're going to join Russell and he's going to tell us a little bit about Tor Johnson. Tor Johnson, the star of today's episode, is familiar to many B-movie fans for his appearances in Edwards movies and other low-budget sci-fi shows. But who was he? Where did he come from? And where did he go? He was born Carl Erik Tor Johansson in Stockholm, Sweden in October 19 in either 1902 or 1903. Nobody seems quite sure. He moved to the USA in the late 20s where he first began wrestling then headed to Hollywood where he started getting bit parts in movies playing strongmen, weightlifters, harem guards or other literal heavies. He appeared in some significant films in this period alongside stars like Eddie Cantor, Charles Lawton, Ronald Coleman as well as the comedians Olsen and Johnson, Bob Hope and Abbott and Costello. However, professional wrestling was his true entree. Wrestling has been around since ancient times, but in the US it moved from being a genuine sport to a semi-theatrical pursuit with heroes, villains and grandstanding, plus the new medium of television loved it. The 6 foot 3 inch Johnson was a natural and was billed as a super Swedish angel. He actually had a full head of blonde hair, but shaved it to make his appearance more menacing. He would usually win his bouts by lowering his 400 pound frame on his opponents, but were then able to escape from his great bulk. The 1978 Henry Winkler film The One and Only covers this period of history for those of you interested in it. He appeared in the Bob Hope film The Lemon Drop Kid as his wrestling character and continued to appear in mainstream films like Tony Curtis's Houdini, but as he was getting too old for the ring in the 50s, he started turning up in low-budget horror and sci-fi movies, including The Black Sleep, The Unearthly, and the Edward trilogy Bride of the Monster, Plan 9 from Outer Space, and Night of the Ghouls. He usually played the silent, hulking assistant Lobo to mad scientists like Bela Lugosi and John Carradine, though he occasionally got dialogue like Time for to go to bed in The Unearthly, and had several heavily Swedish-accented lines in Plan 9 as Police Inspector Clay, before being mostly turned into a zombie. He also made several appearances on TV shows including You Are There! Rocky Jones Space Ranger, Peter Gunn, Bonanza, and even Shirley Temple's storybook. But his most memorable TV appearance was with Groucho Marx on You Bet Your Life. Say the secret word and you divide an extra hundred dollars. Who are you, Khrushchev? Paul <laughs> Johnson. 
Have you taught Johnson? Why? Did he get uh, get angry at him? No, uh, that's the sweetest name. Toad Johnson is the sweetest name. Oh, Toy Johnson, you mean, huh? Yes, sir. I can't say Johnson. <laughs> Just for the record, uh, uh, what's your gross tonnage? That's uh, about 387 pounds. Is that strip for Jim? That's soaking wet. <laughs> What are the rest of your dimensions, Tor? Personally, I'm not interested, but you you may be an old boxcar that the Union Pacific Railroad is looking for. <laughs> my hips are 60, my uh, stomach waistline is 54, and the chest is 62, my bicep is 22, and the neck is 20. We have the same measurements. <laughs> His chest and my automobile. Now, in these little one-act plays that you uh, perform in the ring, are you generally the villain or the hero? I'm the villain. You're the villain. The people, they hit me. They hit you. Well, why are you the villain, you fine-looking lad? I scare them all the time. You do? You, you couldn't scare a fly, I don't think. Despite his menacing physical appearance, off-screen and at home, Tor was known as a kind and generous man. His wife Greta hated the roles Tor would land in his films because they in no way portrayed the person that Tor really was. Tor's son Carl also started out as a wrestler, even wrestling against his own father on occasion. He later served as a police lieutenant in San Fernando when Edward gave Carl a handful of uncredited roles including Farmer Caldwell in Plan 9 and Dead Man in Night of the Ghouls. Tor would also invite his movie friends over for dinner and they'll stare amazed as the family munched its way through enormous meals of multiple chickens each, Swedish meatballs by the truckload and bowl after bowl of homemade ice cream. One of the house guests was Anthony Cordoza, screenwriter for Beast of Yucca Flats. He claimed he put on 60 pounds from eating at Tor's while the movie was being made. Tor had been suggested to him as the Beast by his friend Ed Wood, and while Tor has always looked like an irradiated monster, he was in his late 50s and over 400 pounds, and a bit past running around the California desert for the film. The crew had to rig up a series of ropes and pulleys to get him up and down stand dunes. Beast proved to be his swan song, though he did have a small role in the Monkey's 68 movie Head. He would die three years later of heart failure at the age of 68, unsurprising in a man so large. While gone, he was not forgotten, as the Don Post studio produced a best-selling Halloween mask of him in the late 60s, and a surge of interest in the movies of Ed Wood in the 80s brought him to the attention of bad movie enthusiasts the world over. Comic artist Drew Friedman began a series of strips of tour living his life as a hulking movie character, later collected in Any Resemblance Between Persons Living or Dead is Purely Coincidental, and perhaps his ultimate allocade, he was portrayed by latter-day wrestler George Animal Steel in Tim Burton's 1984 Ed Wood biopic. Thanks, Russell, and I'm glad you pointed out that Tor was an actor before being in the Ed Wood movies, the movie Ed Wood, the Tim Burton movie, seems to indicate that he was discovered by Ed Wood, and that simply is not true. Also in Dialogue Not Necessary, the 
Ballyhoo documentary about Beast of Yucca Flats, people who worked on the film also talk about what a gentle, kind person Tor was, and, uh, and he really didn't talk the way he does in the movies. So, You know, one of the strangest parts of this film was the pre-credit sequence in which a topless woman gets strangled. It really has nothing to do with the film, or maybe it's supposed to be the Beast in some sort of a weird flashback. I don't know. But this was filmed by Coleman well after the initial film was completed. I have to assume that Coleman realized that the film was less than an hour long and way too short, so he added an extra scene, and he also wanted to put a little nudity in his movie. Of course, this was slightly re-edited for the showing on Mystery Science Theater, cutting out the actual breast shot. But now, speaking of Mystery Science Theater 3000, let's join Nancy, who's going to talk about Mike and the Bots and their take on this classic film. Episode 621 of MST3K is a cornucopia of, I hesitate to say, awesome, but it's definitely chock full of laughs. As a bonus, the episode starts off with not one, but two shorts. Yeah, Coleman Francis wasn't known for his sprawling epics, so the film wasn't quite enough to fill an entire two-hour show. For the prologue, Mike wallpapers the satellite of love badly. Unfortunately, he gets help from the bots. It's not good help. After the commercial break, we're into the first host segment. Dr. F and Frank are up to some kind of political shenanigans and are campaigning stridently for Proposition Deep 13. It's kind of vague, but they have all the fashionable talking points handy. Simply put, Proposition Deep 13 means that we will send you today's experiment, the Beast of Yucca Flats. Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. And it will crush the satellite of love, Nelson, because we've signed a contract with America. Now this doesn't stop Crow and Tom from issuing a rebuttal. When the Mads tell Mike and company what their feature is going to be, it hits kind of hard. Well, I think we can survive. We're doing we <laughs> I thought so. Then it's movie sign and we're in the theater. First, we have our first short, Money Talks. It's a little gem of a 50s educational film about managing your finances while barely out of short pants. We follow the tribulations of William, who can't seem to live within his means despite a generous allowance and a couple of lucrative side gigs. Now, I don't think that your problem is a difficult one, William. You have one important thing to learn, and then you'll have no problem. You must learn how to manage your money. What money? Don't smart-mouth me, boy. <laughs> William is very Tommy Kirk-esque. When the ghost of Ben Franklin shows up, with some much-needed advice, young Will is skeptical, then earnest, then triumphant in turn. Before long, he's maniacally drafting an elaborate budget. Plan my savings. <laughs> William, what are you doing in there? You're not talking to the Founding Fathers again, are you? If you'll remember these few simple rules, William. I'm sure that you'll find it very easy to stay out of the red. 
dead people have too much time on their hands. Eventually, he puts the screws to Dad for a raise. It works after a bit of clever budgetary semantics, because money talks. Our next short pioneers the short attention span theater school of filmmaking in an effort to sing the praises of Puerto Rico. It's in color, so it has that going for it. It also sports a vivacious soundtrack which often springs into action with a waka-chicka-waka-chicka vibe that evokes images of gunfights with guys in bell-bottom trousers and big hair. Who's the cat who would risk his life for fellow man? Shaft. Yeah, can you dig it? Turns out, Puerto Rico is now called Progress Island, finger quotes, and part of the progress is knowing where your booze comes from. The rums of Puerto Rico, many different brands, all with flavors that are remarkably light and dry. I love this job. Almost all of the rum sold in the U.S. is produced here, and its export is vital to the economy. So drink rum constantly. I'm not sure who this film was intended for, but it feels like something that would have been shown in the Puerto Rico pavilion at a World's Fair back in the 70s, 80s, or 90s, because it's a heavy-handed hard sell on steroids. Okay, we'll move there. For host segment number two, Mike and the bots are settled in for a quiet evening of reading and contemplation when a space high school beer party drifts by. Oh, this is nice, isn't it? <laughs> yep. Yeah. What the heck could that be? I don't know. Whatever it is, it's annoying. Hey, Cambot, show me rocket number nine, will you? Hey, come on, keep it down. Hey, a bunch of water buffalo. What's your problem? Well, we were just wondering, you know, if you could keep it down. What do you mean? I mean, what's your deal? Don't you party? Party. Somehow, Crow drifts over to the portable party and throws a couple of bucks in for beer, but Tom breaks it all up by imitating a police siren. I know just what to do, Mike. After the commercial break, it's straight to the feature, The Beast of Yucca Flats. The opening is kind of creepy and not in a quality horror film creepy way. It involves the murder of a young woman by an unknown... Okay, it's obviously going to be the titular beast because good old Coleman Francis just isn't that clever. It's also chronologically inept since we haven't gotten to the point plot point where, spoiler, our protag monster is turned into the beast. We also never hear anything about this murder again, who she is, what happens. It just exists, suspended in time, like just about every other scene in this movie. Coleman was fascinated with the drama of the Cold War, apparently, because at least two of his films deal with it. In this little film, we have a defected Russian scientist. We never really find out what kind of scientist who is ambushed by Soviet operatives. These men are also behind the Iron Curtain. Pay no attention to them. Two of the Kremlin's most ruthless agents. Their orders, get the briefcase. Kill Javorsky. They got it all mixed up. They killed the briefcase and got Javorsky. It's an overlong muddle of a first plot point, but the bots defend this directorial choice. It is more suspenseful when you don't know what's going on. 
Because this movie was filmed without sound, it's basically a silent picture with a running voiceover. Attempts are occasionally made at dialogue, but to avoid sound sync issues, the speakers are always out of frame or turned away from the camera. I'm sure Jeff is covering the background on this. Without the deadpan narration, however, we would never have had this memorable line. Flag on the moon. How did it get there? These are all just random sentences, folks. More than any of the other non-sequitur lines in this masterpiece of slapdash filmmaking, this one is such a ham-fisted attempt at profundity that Mike and the bots reference it a couple more times before the end. Our scientist is driven away by a heroic chauffeur who occupies the bad guys so Javorsky can escape. On foot, onto a missile range, where he's promptly caught in the blast of an atomic bomb test. Instead of being incinerated, as one might think, he's just burned a little and turned into a raging beast. He roams the typical Coleman Francis bleak landscape looking for his next victim, which firstly turns out to be a guy changing a flat on the side of the road. Now the guy's wife is in the car as well, so the beast chokes her out and carries her off like a rag doll. Then it's time for the third host segment. Mike reads a book. Crow keeps asking if it's 11.30. Where did this bizarre idea for a sketch come from? Turns out it was inspired by Frank Conniff, a.k.a. TV's Frank. According to Mary Jo Peel in the Amazing Colossal Episode Guide, when Frank joined MST3K, the writing team got in the habit of taking lunch at 11.30 because Frank, having not had breakfast, was so hungry by then. It was a ritual in the writing room that Frank would start asking whoever had the watch, usually Mike, about 10 a.m. or so, if it was 11.30 yet. And he would keep asking. The challenge was to find a different way to say no each time. Back to the movie. Just when you start to worry that the Beast is also going to be the main character, the narrator introduces us to the first of our law enforcement guys, Plucky Sheriff Joe. Joe Dobson. Bitter over missing breakfast. Caught in the wheels of progress. Having trouble logging onto the information superhighway. The crime scene has him all in a tizzy, so he scurries off to roust up his deputy pal, Jim. Better come with me. Trouble up the road. Murder. Be right down. I'm glad I can talk to you so openly. Oh, uh, flag on the moon, too, by the way. Soon we're back to the crime scene, then hot on the trail of the perp. This triggers a tedious sequence of climbing scenes, an MST staple, where it's obvious that the guys are just scrambling around some large boulders and steep hills, pretending to be scaling a dangerous peak with the camera rolling just a few feet away on the flat ground. They find the monster's cave. They find the girl. They start carrying her down the mountain, but she dies on the way. When we cut back to them again, they don't have her body anymore. Did they just dump her? We'll never know. Seems like shoddy policing to me. Then, in a meanwhile sequence that's even more boring, we get a little family on vacation. Vacation time. So, goodbye. People travel east, west, north or south. Yeah, some people just burrow the straight right down, I guess. travel east with two small boys. Yep. 
It's a Coleman Francis signature driving sequence. Oh, good. More driving action. Film padding at its finest. The little family stops to get gas. The kids look at some dusty livestock. They head back out. Cutting back to the law, Jim and Joe get the bright idea to have Jim, a Korean War veteran, parachute onto the Mesa, where they think the monster is hiding. Gotta get small planes and skydiving into the story or it wouldn't be a Coleman Francis project. Back with the little family, they're parked on the side of the road because now they have a flat tire. It's a very economical use of plot points. Just keep using the same one over and over. The two boys wander off, of course. Somehow, in just a few minutes, they've wandered out of shouting distance. Mom walks out into the sage and tumbleweeds about 100 feet and calls softly for them. No dice. She comes back and Dad goes out, wandering farther and farther and farther away. This whole sequence can't go on long enough for me. Our two subplots finally collide when Jim in the airplane spots Dust Bowl Dad looking for the kids and immediately assumes he's the perp. Using some very sketchy law enforcement protocol, he immediately starts taking pot shots at Dust Bowl Dad, who naturally starts running and running and running. Well, he was probably guilty of something. There are some random cuts to the beast stumbling around in the desert, but we keep coming back to Dad running and getting shot at. Eventually, Jim jumps out of the plane and pops his chute. Is this supposed to be the mesa that nobody can climb to? How did Dad get up there? Why are there so many roads and power lines up there? It's a mystery. For the fourth host segment, Crow offers a solution to combat the very existence of terrible movies. Tragically, films like these are not deteriorating fast enough. That's why I urge you to support FAPS, the Film Anti-Preservation Society. At FAPS, we're devoted to allowing the films of Coleman Francis and countless others to die a gentle, natural death. Mike thinks Crow may be a wee bit out of line. Meanwhile, back in the movie, Jim now hunts Dust Bowl Dad on foot. It goes on way too long. The actor playing Dad can't seem to remember where he was shot and alternately limps, clutches his arm, or grabs his stomach. He makes his way back to his wife, then leaves her on the side of the road to, ostensibly, go get help. After another pointless voiceover, the music lends itself to a brief moment of acknowledgement for the film's auteur. The next six to ten minutes are basically random shots of people stumbling around in the Nevada desert. Jim and Joe, the Beast, Dust Bowl Mom, Wounded Dad, the two boys. There's never any indication of how much time has passed or where these people are in relation to each other. The Beast runs into the boys and chases them for a hot minute, and then... After a brief moment of almost action, we're back to our normal pace. flag on the moon how to get there <laughs> now i'm an mst3k fan or misty i've seen this episode many times but man oh man i forgot just how little happens in this movie francis just filmed some stuff threw it in a pile and cut it together two words movie loaf anyway meanwhile the law rustles up a posse of locals to help search for the kids 
This is established with a wide shot so unpopulated with people that it prompts Mike to say... Now this could be vacation footage for all we know. <laughs> Cutting back to the beast's lair, we catch the kids sneaking out of said cave. The beast wakes up and tosses a boulder at them. More random shots of people. The beast almost catches the kids, but Jim and Joe arrive just in time to drop the beast with one shot. When they get close to inspect the body, the beast lurches up, tosses Joe, and goes for paratrooper Jim. Joe recovers from being tossed into the bushes and shoots the beast again, just in time to save Jim. I guess the second time's a charm. We cut back to Dust Bowl Mom, still waiting by the side of the road. Hank, I'm going back to college. You know, women today just can't wait like they used to. For the fifth and last host segment, Mike and the bots deliver their victory speech, for they have indeed survived the Beast of Yucca Flats. They incorporate the letter reading into this nicely, I thought. Then Mike is brought in for a few words, where he cleverly squeezes in a couple of quotes from two of Coleman Francis's other films, Red Zone Cuba and The Skydivers. And thank you. It was a long and hard campaign, yet we emerged victorious. We tamed the beast of Yucca Flats. We rallied round the Coleman Francis cry. I'm Cherokee Jack. We took the worst they had to offer, and we say proudly. Coffee? Yes, I like coffee. The Mads, alas, must give a concession speech. I'd like to say that what we've suffered here tonight is not a defeat. It may look like defeat, it may feel like defeat, it may even smell like defeat. Oh, what the heck. Frank, I'm going to start slapping you now and I may never stop. The stinger at the end is a clip of Tor Johnson as the beast as he, quoting from Kevin Murphy in the Amazing Colossal Episode Guide, flails and bellows as only Tor and a few silverbacks can. Thanks, Nancy. And uh, and I never knew that story that that uh, sandwich scene was based on Frank Conniff wondering when lunch was coming up. It's pretty funny. I am Dracula. Dracula. The very mention of the name brings to mind things so evil, so fantastic, so degrading. You wonder if it isn't all a dream, a nightmare. Rats. 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 Thousands. Millions of them. But no, this is no dream. This is Dracula. The original terrifying story of a maniac and a man who lived after death, lived on human blood, took the form of a vampire bat, and lured innocent girls to a fate truly worse than death. Dracula? Oh, what, what's he done to you, dear? Tell me. He came to me. He opened a thing in his arms, and he made me drink. A little bit before I go. First of all, I want to apologize for anyone who downloaded last week's episode on Monday. I got the episode wrong. Um, I'm often trying to finish up the show, 
and get it posted before I leave for work. And in my rush, I uploaded the previous week's episode, but it was fixed by that evening. One thing I didn't mention in my talk of the film was the famous Tor dying scene at the end. Um, There's a rabbit that appears, and apparently that just happened. It wasn't planned. A rabbit just walked up and Tor petted the rabbit for a moment before he died. For a moment I was thinking that Coleman got really clever, but no, it was just a happy accident. So anyway, now a little follow-up on Francis Coleman. After Red Zone Cuba, his life went downhill really fast. I mean, he was always trying to get another film off the ground, but it never happened. A few of his friends gave him work just to help out, like Russ Meyer gave him a cameo in Beyond the Valley of the Dows, and he was in a few Ray Dennis Steckler films. But by the end, he was extremely overweight, living on the street or out of his car, and He died of a heart attack at the age of 53 on January 15, 1973. I've actually done a few YouTube videos on Coleman. If you'd like to know more, just do a search for The Search for Francis Coleman and they should pop up. Now next week, because it's Halloween, we're going to talk about the 1931 film Dracula starring Bela Lugosi. I hope you'll join us. Now listen up. We have a Facebook page and we would love to read your comments. It's called Celluloid Days. Please join us. We also have a Twitter account. It's at Celluloid underscore Days. And for an update, we're up to 40 followers. It's the big time. I'm always looking for film suggestions. The more strange and unusual, the better. The email address for the show is daysofcelluloid at gmail.com. Days of Celluloid being a one word. Free to email me for any reason. And if you could leave me a review, hopefully a good one at wherever you get this podcast, I'd be forever grateful. Thank you for listening. I'll be back next week. Stay healthy. Goodbye. They're under the goddamn ground. Tell them about the Twinkie. What about the Twinkie? They had 500 years of democracy and peace, and what did that produce? Cuckoo clock. Dallas multi You know it's multi You're stupid minds. Stupid. Stupid. The High Court may well sentence you to torture. Can you play the piano? I can play the piano.